You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Tenor Brandon Jovanovich is backstage at Lyric. That's the thing about uh, Janacek, what I found it anyway, is that they're real people. And it is it is a lot easier whenever you're dealing with emotions that aren't... When you keep repeating the same thing, you know, I love you, you know, I love you so much. And, no, but I love you even more, you know, and you say it over and over again. It, it, it can get a little tricky how to make that new and different each time. But in Janacek, it, it is a, a conversational style and... Um, it's, it's a lot easier to latch on to the emotions and the intentions of the character. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. In this edition, I have the pleasure of speaking with American tenor Brandon Jovanovich, who's making his Lyric Opera debut as Boris in Janacek's Katya Kabanova. Mr. Jovanovich has been enormously successful in a wide repertoire internationally, including most recently Borjak's Rusalka at Gleinborn and Janacek's Yenufa at the Bavarian State Opera. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Katya Kabanova, here's a brief synopsis. In a small town in Russia in the 1890s, Katya is unhappily married to the ineffectual Tichon, who's under the thumb of his implacable and judgmental mother, Kabanicha. Katya falls in love with the dashing Boris. After Tihon leaves on a trip to Kazan, Kabanicha's foster daughter, Varvara, persuades Katya to meet Boris in the Kabanov's garden. Katya does so, but the resulting ecstasy leaves her guilt-ridden. When the Kabanovs seek shelter from a storm, they and other townspeople are shocked when Katya suddenly confesses her affair with Boris. Rushing away, she wanders to the banks of the river where Boris finds her tormenting herself over having humiliated him and damaged her own good name. He sadly informs her that his wealthy uncle, on whom he must depend for his inheritance, is sending him away. Katya bids him farewell, then throws herself into the Volga. Her body is dragged out by the townspeople as Kabanicha coldly thanks them for their kindness. And now, on to the interview with tenor Brandon Jovanovich. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Brandon Jovanovich, who will be making his lyric opera debut this season as Boris in Janacek's Katya Kabanova. Now, you've had a rather interesting period as far as Czech opera is concerned lately. Yeah, this year was my, I refer to as my Czech year. I had a, um, this summer, three months in, uh, in England with the Glyndebourne Festival singing Ruzalka, and then I had a little period of um, Italian, but then I returned to uh, Munich to sing a um, Yenufa, something I hadn't done in a couple of years, and then this is my first Boris. So. so, who is this guy, Boris? Not totally admirable, and yet not unsympathetic. No, exactly. He's, he's a little bit... I consider him to be in the vein of a B.F. Pinkerton from Madame Butterfly. He is a younger guy who uh, his parents died, his grandma died, he was of a um, wealthier family from Moscow, but when his parents died they sent him to uh, live with his grandma, but since she was dead, the uncle 
He was pawned off to an uncle who's not the nicest man in the world. And he has to, to get his inheritance, one of the things he has to do, actually the only stipulation, is to be nice to the uncle. And the uncle is, a, uh, is just a bear. And uh, everyone, he's got a, a reputation of being mean. And, uh, and so this kid's not in a, the best way. So in the, uh, in the very first scene, isn't the uncle just sort of laying into Boris in a big way? Yeah, yeah he's, he is. And, and uh, he's, he's just telling me off for doing, no matter what I do, what, left or, turn left or right, it's wrong, no matter what. Do you get the sense that Boris doesn't really, is, isn't really doing anything? That he doesn't have a job? That he doesn't, what, is, what does he do with his time? No, exactly. He doesn't, he has nothing to do, ultimately. I think it's a very boring life that he leads in this little town. So he falls in love with Katya. Why do you think he falls in love with her? I think he has a uh, he, he has a sister that he, he's trying to uh, care for, but she's staying with the, the mom side of the family. And I think it has something to do with maybe a, not a mother complex, but something a female, uh, needing a female in his life. Whether, you know, his sister's gone, his mother died, he never really, he was at a boarding school, so never really knew her. I think it's, and also I think she's probably uh, maybe that first attraction, you know, you see somebody from across the room and you just know. So they have these ten nights that they spend together, right? Right, yeah. And then this affair is revealed, and he leaves her. Why does he? <laughs> he laughs. That's right. <laughs> you know, I think there's, there's a couple of reasons. He's, like I said, I think this town is a dead-end town for him. It's, it's really not, it's not Moscow. It'd be like... Um, Imagine going from Chicago to a little uh, podunk town in the middle of Nebraska or something. You know, it's he. Um, so he he feels free, uh, the freedom of of leaving his uncle, who's mean and everything. But also, Katya starts to kind of uh, lose her mind a little bit, and and uh, she starts to get very needy, doesn't she's she? She's getting very needy, and she's starting in the final scene. She's we're, we're talking, and she she keeps saying. Uh, I was going to say something. I, I, what was I going to say? My mind keeps, you know, wandering. I'm sorry. And he could tell something's up. But I think that that's uh, the, the combination of the two. Getting from uh, under the thumb of his uncle and also uh, seeing the, the change in Katya makes it easier for him to leave. He, he does have some terrific music to sing, doesn't he? Oh, some fantastic, some fantastic music, uh, especially in the, uh, when he and Katya first get together. Uh, it's just beautiful lines, beautiful melodies. It's really... What, are, what do you think the greatest strengths of the piece as a whole are? One thing that I've noticed about uh, Janacek is he has an ability to create such tension in the music. And then to relieve it at the right time with these wonderful phrases and, uh, and beautiful arching lines. And uh, it's the combination of the two that really, I was thinking the other day, I was uh, likening it in my mind to turn of the screw. It just keeps on, the tension just keeps getting more and more. And he uh, does a fantastic job writing these, uh, composing these these characters. Uh, it's really fantastic. Do you find that it's easier to get into this piece than a lot of other repertoire because you're, everybody's playing real people? I mean, these are believable human beings on the stage? No, exactly. Exactly. I, that's, that's, the, that's the thing about uh, Janacek, what I found it anyway, is that they are. They're real people. They're, uh, and it's, it is a lot easier whenever you're dealing with emotions that aren't 
when you keep repeating the same thing, you know, I love you, you know, I love you so much, and no, but I love you even more, you know, and you say it over and over again, it, it, it can get a little tricky how to make that new and different each time, but in Janacek, it, it is a, a conversational style, and um, and it's it's a lot uh, it's it's a lot easier to latch on to the emotions and the intentions of the character. What sense do you have? I mean, at this point in time, you've only been rehearsing for a little more than a week. So, what do you have? Uh, what idea do you have at this point of what this production is really going to be like? Oh, good luck. Um, I think the production, from what I've seen, it's a rather sparse set, as what I would say. It's uh, but. Because of that, you focus a lot more on the on the characters and uh, the characterizations that we're going to be uh, developing over the next uh, couple of weeks. And for everything that I've seen, it's going to be absolutely fantastic because I've got some terrific colleagues. And um, and I think it's going to be just fireworks happening on stage up there. You've never been on stage with Karita Matala before, have you? No, this will be my first time. Oh, boy. And... Yeah. Uh, and yesterday, I believe, was her first day. That's correct. And I assume it must have been thrilling for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. We, we, um, we sang through just a little bit of the, um, of the love duet, and it uh, just sounds fantastic. And I'm so excited we're going to actually work on that uh, scene here today. Now, your repertoire is incredibly varied. So are you conscious of making certain adjustments when you go from style to style because you sing so much, uh, I mean, in numerous languages, I mean, super contemporary stuff to a lot of the standard 19th and early 20th century repertoire. How do you move so easily from one to the other? The one thing that I could say is I'm glad it's not in Germany where I have to do it in a matter of days. You know, it's, I, I have time to work into each one with the rehearsal period. It's, it's a, uh, I mean, it is challenging it, it, it there's a, a challenge to each of the pieces but I, I try to just uh, stay rooted uh, to what I do with the character and I find that if your uh, intentions are, are correct emotionally it's most of the time married to the intentions of the composer and it makes it easier uh, um, if you follow what's written and yeah yeah it's it's a good question. And <laughs> I wish I had a better answer. Well, I just do well, it. <laughs> well, do people listen to you, and do they say? Do you hear? Do you hear from certain people? Oh, you're a French singer, and then oh, you're a German. Uh, you're a German tenor, or you're this. I mean, uh, do do you find that people have a tendency to classify you as they do so many tenors, or do you feel that you can convince them in whatever repertoire you to sing? The last two years. It seems to me that what I sing, if I'm singing French, uh, doing a lot of Carmen's, that that is the definitive thing that I can do according to the people that hear me at the time. And then if I sing Czech, um, like this summer I was told, you know, was, uh, I wish you could bring this to Prague and, and show, uh, show what you could do there. Uh, Italian, I, I, I get the same. Uh, you do a lot of Cavaradossis and Pinkertons, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of, lot of Pinkertons especially. But uh, I just, uh, just uh, Il Tabarro, I just finished up at San Francisco and kind of the same thing, you know. It's, uh, and then uh, Die Vögel, I uh, sang as a German piece, um, the, the L.A. Uh, Recovered Voices series. And they, uh, and I got a lot of, oh, German is the, the thing for you, so... So that sounds like you're totally convincing people in whatever repertoire it is. Which is yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I mean, do you you have this really interesting balance between the conventional stuff that everybody knows, like Tosca and Butterfly and right. uh, Tales of Hoffman, etc. And then you do the really off-the-beaten-track stuff, like I heard your name mentioned for the first time in relation to an opera, a British opera called The Mines of Sulphur. Oh, right, right. And I thought, wow... That's really, it's interesting that that piece is brought back. This tenor was, be, you know, because it's a very challenging role. So, the, so my basic question is, do you try to balance your performing life between the off-the-wall stuff and the standard repertoire, or does it just sort of happen that way? More than anything, it happened that way. I mean, I, I when I got into the business, I really didn't come up through a, a young artist program that, that was influential and helped. Uh, I, I went to Santa Fe and such, but that, that is only for the summer months and so my career really took off doing some of the actually it was a healthy mix I guess of, of contemporary and and then more of the standard rep and and but I've always enjoyed the challenge of the contemporary pieces and uh, more modern pieces and and I now it seems that I'm doing more of the standard stuff but I I'm trying to keep my foot in the contemporary operas just because I think it's a uh, Wonderful way to bring in some new audiences and also to uh, to keep my uh, musicality kind of sharp. Yeah. Well, which leads me into the next question, which is you did have the experience of creating a role in Anna Karenina. Right, and right. you were the love interest, right? That's correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the, uh, I was uh, Constance, Constantine Levin. Uh, the, the so... It was by David Carlson, right? And it premiered in Miami, right? It premiered in Miami, then immediately went to uh, St. Louis. So, was that your first significant interaction with a living composer? No, no, actually, I've had a few. Uh, in in 1998, I did a, a piece called uh, "The Picture of Dorian Gray," and that was by Lowell Lieberman, and I worked with uh, him on that. He was there for the whole uh, the whole period, and then in 1996, actually. I did a piece uh, called uh, La Rappuccini's Daughter, ultimately, and that was with uh, Daniel Catan. I know Daniel Catan. Oh, really? And, and, and we did the piece in San Diego when I worked. Oh, there. how funny! Yeah. yeah. So we did the whole. We did it out at. Uh, I was at, at Manhattan School of Music at the time, and fantastic guy. I mean, you know, and and so giving and. Um, no, it was it was really great. And although the Mines of Sulphur was writ- written by uh, Sir Richard Rodney Bennett, he is alive, but he wasn't out there. He just came to the premiere. Um, but what sorts of things come up in interaction with a composer who is present that uh, that make that experience so invaluable? You know, you get a you. I mean, you get insight as to why things are the way they are, why he composed them, how he set them up, because a lot of times, um, such as the case of Anna Karenina, uh, David had to make adjustments to such a large novel, you know, that, that it was, they had to cut and move things around, but you really got to understand uh, how he set the scene and what his uh, feelings were for and what he was trying to conjure up in the characters and um, and his motivations for, for moving, linking up two scenes with a, a particular music or whatever. And then also, if something didn't work for you uh, vocally or most, I'm trying to think, I think all of them were more than willing to discuss options. Uh, and, and that is a place that's invaluable. So if Janacek <laughs> were around today... What do you think you would want to ask him oh, good. about Katya or Katya and Boris? Oh, good luck. Um, there's, I imagine there's some things that would be nice to uh, 
to try to ferret out uh, uh, music. But I tell you, with Janacek, it's really... He really does a... People have said there's not a wasted note in the music. And, and for the most part, it's true. I mean, he really composed things uh, so well. And... Um, I have a couple of questions that I'd ask him about my lines. But other than that, uh, I think it's pretty uh, self-explanatory. I think Boris is a really good role for somebody who started out in life as, as an actor, which I believe you did. You're right. right. Um, who discovered your voice? You know, it's been a work in progress, my voice. I, I, was at, uh, I went to a Catholic high school in... Um, in Billings, Montana, and Sister Peg Johnson might, uh, she might take credit for it because she uh, cast me in the lead of, uh, of uh, The Sound of Music. I was Georg, Georg von Trapp. But then uh, when I went down to college, I went there as a, uh, as a bass, and, uh, and they kind of kept moving me around. So each one of my teachers down there, I'm sure, would credit themselves with, uh, with my development. Um, but your degree is in theater. My isn't degree it? is in theater. My degree is in theater, and um, and it. But I started off as a music major, but I moved over to theater, and I ended up getting the degree in theater with a minor in music. You were at Glyndebourne with as your leading lady in Rusaka Anna Maria Martinez, who was just here at Lyric for Faust, and she told me how believable you were on the stage playing the prince, and how you were just in the moment and totally connected to your character all the time. So. You know, opera hasn't always been hailed for the believability of its acting. By no means. But that yeah. situation, do you think that situation is starting to change? I think it is. I think it has to change if it wants to compete with all of the other things out there, styles of entertainment. I mean, you've got movies, you've got theater, you've got television, you've got heck, YouTube videos now. I mean, there's so many things that we're competing with that I think to keep audiences, especially newer audiences, Involved and wanting to see opera, I think it's just a natural progression that that it's uh, starting to focus more and more on the on the uh, acting, um, and I and I'm glad to see it. Uh, yeah. Do you find that because you have this theatrical training, you are automatically at an extraordinary advantage on the stage in whatever you play? I wouldn't say so. A lot of it has to do with a director and what they want uh, from you and what they ask. And it's, uh, it's a challenge sometimes to uh, work within the parameters that are set for you by different directors. And uh, if they want, I, I remember I did a um, Macbeth and it was so, um, everything was very still and we had to move extremely slow and it was a challenge. It was very confining, but at the same time, I mean, once you know the um, the limitations that the director wants you to put this around, you put a certain, I don't want to say restraints on you, but you can move within those and work within those. But it's a, it's a balancing act between the two. What do you do on stage when you find a partner who isn't responding to character as you are and isn't communicating with you, do you have particular things that you try to sort of bring them out of themselves? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a good question. It's, uh, it happens more than you would like, but it, it, um, I find that I, I try to draw them out. Usually you know by the time you're on, you know, in front of an audience whether or not it's going to happen. 
And then if it's not, I find that I play more towards the audience. I, I do a lot of... I, I find I, I don't uh, play to the person as much. It's more for myself. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking to them, but I'm not necessarily interacting with them as much as I would somebody who's giving me something back. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, you're singing Boris, who does not necessarily pose the same demands on you purely vocally as something like Hoffman. Right. Yeah, so is in a role like Hoffman... Are you thinking about technique constantly, or do you think about technique in whatever the role is, no matter how dramatically involved you are? You know, for the most part, I would like to, I like to prepare a role in a way that the technique is thought of before and during the rehearsal process, but mainly before. It's kind of, um, you kind of tweak it in rehearsal process, but then you start letting go of the technique, and it should be there, kind of... Uh, kind of like the roots of a tree, if you will, and, and your, um, the product itself, what you see on stage, is, a, uh, is integrated vocally. Your technique is integrated with the character so that you're not having to think about technique as much, maybe on a certain passages, certain phrases that are difficult, but you're thinking more about the, uh, uh, the character and the intention of what's, uh, of what's happening on stage. And, um, and then it, it kind of uh, it works together in a beautiful way yeah you do all this work in europe tons of of major european engagements do you find that people work differently over there in terms of i mean are theatrical values different there yeah they are they're they're not as conservative as uh the states tends to be but that's both good and bad i i find that you have more modern productions over there um there have you been in some crazy ones Gosh, yeah, I've been in a couple. <laughs> I've been in a a Carmen that um, I had a uh, s- simulated sex with Micaela in the in the um, in the first meeting, you know, with her, and that's uh, by no means what uh, Bizet intended. Um, the Yanufa that I just uh, did that was there was a little bit of a nuclear uh, waste happening with. Um, with the chorus, and uh, they all kind of had these larger Frodo feet and uh, green uh, goo on their faces from uh, nuclear fallout. So little things. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, there's, um, they don't mind, and they, don't, they kind of expect that it's um, going to be uh, challenging for the audiences, and, and, and I like that. In the shows that you've done over there, have they all been thoroughly rehearsed, or have you done some instant opera experiences where you had like a day and then you were on stage? Right. You know, the the quickest one, for the most part, I've been able to rehearse things thoroughly. That's that's been kind of my path. But uh, the, the Yenufa that I, I had just done, uh, that was the the fastest thing I put together. I think we had four days of rehearsal, and maybe three, and uh, and then we were up and running. And so that was a uh, that was something. But uh, but it worked out okay. It was a really good show in the end. You're constantly on the road, it seems. Um, whether, so whether you're in Italy or France or Austria, Great Britain, how do you manage to make each place that you're singing as home-like as possible? What do you try to achieve in your non-performing life when you're in these places for you know two months or however long it is right right i mean the luxury of it is my my family i've got three kids my wife and they travel with me some of the times 
Um, they used to more, but now the kids are in, in school, so it's getting uh, more difficult. Where are you based? In Montana, Billings, Montana. And so um, so that's, my, my mom's there, my, my family's there, I'm from there. And so they're able to help out with my, with my, help my wife and my kids. They have a sense of home and family around them when I'm gone. So if they're not with me, I end up... Um, you know, I've got pictures that I put up, and I've got some drawings that uh, the kids have given me, things like that. But then I try to find um, one of the things that I like to do is I find a gym, and uh, and that I don't know, but it helps to relieve some stress and uh, uh, something that I do every day or try to, and and um, and then other than that, I guess it's just keeping contact with uh, with my family is the biggest thing. Do you do it? through email and Twitter and Facebook and texting? I mean, or is it a combination of things? Right. You know, I'd say mainly it's uh, mainly the main thing, I guess, is is uh, the cell phone. But then, then there's something called Skype. Uh, on the, it, it allows you to to uh, speak uh, and see the see each other over the. You have internet. a video cam, right? Exactly, exactly. So I can see the kids, and uh, my daughter runs in the other room, plays some piano for me. My son was reading a book to me the other night, and um, and then my uh, youngest son, he just kind of sits there and uh, shows me some cars every once in a while, you know, or just kind of talks and looks at me. But it's no, it's great. They give me a kiss every night, you know, whenever I see them. It's no, it's really good. So. As far as the whole Montana clan, do they travel the world to come to your performances? How often do they get to hear you? Not as much. My mom has heard me the most. Uh, she was over in England this uh, this summer. That's kind of the farthest that she's gone thus far. Um, my sister's seen me in a handful of places. My brother's seen me in just a couple of places. They'll probably come down to Santa Fe this summer, but they're not, um, they're not big travelers. They're not, uh, I think you're, they, they like to stay around Montana. So they've been able to make it out to Minnesota, I think, Seattle, and then down to Santa What Fe. about your performing there? Right, you know, they actually have an opera company there called the Rimrock Opera. And uh, my wife just performed there and something, but uh, uh, I know that I'm, I promised my mom that I would do something there by 2010, and that's just right around the corner. So it's probably going to be a song cycle or something with a Billings Symphony Orchestra, but I've got to, I've got to figure that out. <laughs> well, meanwhile, we have Katya Kavanova with your Boris to look forward to. I want to thank you very much, and I wish you the best of luck with all the performances. Oh, please, thanks. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>